It's a joy to be with all of you today. I greet you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been a delight to be with your men at the, uh, the men's retreat and now to be able to open God's word with you today. After a very challenging 2020, uh, it was a difficult year for our entire nation, indeed uh, the entire world, and uh, particular challenges for me personally. I was in the middle of preaching through uh, a sermon on uh, heaven in 1 Corinthians 13, and I had a heart attack, a literal heart attack. Um, and uh, I foolishly continued the sermon. Uh, you know, when you're having a heart attack, you should stop and go to the hospital. I got chewed out later by the admissions nurse. Uh, what were you thinking? But I didn't know what my people would think if their pastor died in the middle of a sermon on heaven. I don't know how to how to read that. I mean, is he judged by God, struck dead, or is he, you know, taken up into the heavenly glory? I don't, you know, at any rate, uh, 2020 was a hard year. It was a challenging year, and I felt led by the Lord in February of 2021 to begin a sermon series through the book of Job, and that concluded uh, with the sermon that I'm about to give you, an overview uh, of 10 timeless lessons from the book of Job uh, that I preached in December of 2021. As I think about the marvelous wisdom of God and putting the canon together, the 66 books of the Bible, uh, I realize this says very plainly concerning all scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and useful, uh, but not all scripture has the same role to play in our lives. Uh, the Old Testament has a role to play in the lives of Christians. The New Testament has its role to play. The Gospels have their role to play, etc. Uh, but God is very wise in putting the canon together, and he's very wise in giving us the book of Job. For me, it's beneficial as an expositor, as a preacher, to ask, what is the, the Holy Spirit's intention in giving us the book of Job? Why does he want us to read it? Why is it in the Bible? And I've become convinced that the reason that God gave us the gift of the book of Job is to help God's people in every generation with the problem of suffering, uh, with the problem of pain. Uh, even the problem of evil in a world governed by a wise, loving, and all-powerful God. Simply put, I believe that the book of Job was given to help the people of God suffer well. Suffer well. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to suffer well? I believe it means to let God bring suffering into your life without you accusing him of wrongdoing, without you cursing God, without you being estranged from God. That's putting it negatively. More positively, I think there's one verse that sums up for me the central idea, the main lesson of the book of Job, and that's Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Or even though God brings immense suffering in my life, I will use that suffering to learn from God, to draw close to God, to be strengthened in my faith in God, and yes, I will be filled with hope in God even while I am suffering. Now, what is hope? Hope, I believe, is a sense, a feeling in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. Hope is a sense or a feeling in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. So the book of Job will help you to get the most out of your suffering, to actually be strengthened in your hope in God, to not waste, for example, your cancer, as John Piper put in his booklet, don't waste your cancer, or to not waste your unemployment, or to not waste your experience of aging, or of chronic illness, or even the sorrow of burying a loved one, even a child. 
that you will not waste your suffering through unbelief by accusing God of wrongdoing through rebellion and through sin. Now, along with that, as we understand the book of Job, it's a very old book. It was given to the Old Testament era. Uh, Some people think it's the oldest book in the Bible. I don't think there's any way definitely to prove that. That's mostly an argument from silence, the things that Job doesn't mention. Uh, But it's clearly an Old Testament book. And it definitely preceded the coming into the world of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the wisdom that this book gives on suffering is somewhat limited. It is shadow wisdom compared to the full light of glory in Christ. Old Testament saints had a very limited and in some cases even a defective view of death and of the grave and of anything beyond it. Even a great man like Job seemed to have a very limited view of death and the grave. Not much of a view of eternal life in heaven or of the bodily resurrection from the dead that Christ promised for all who believe in him. Job said this in Job 17, 13 through 16. If the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? That's hopelessness as you listen to that language. But when Christ rose from the dead, he changed that forever for the people of God. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus also said in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. So according to the book of Hebrews, in Christ we have a better hope, a better hope. Hebrews 7, 19, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Better than what? Better than that that the Old Testament saints experienced. It's just a better hope because Christ has been raised from the dead. So this is kind of a slogan I came up with in that 31 uh, sermon journey. Job was a better man than any of us will ever be, but we have a better hope than he ever had. Job is a better man than we will ever be, but we have a better hope than he had. And Christ is that hope. Christ's triumphant resurrection from the dead means that death has been swallowed up in victory. So we can and should hope much better than Job did. We can drink in Job's words as we read them, and we can take some of the wisdom that he gives us. We can also live by contrast We can hope to imitate him definitely in his godliness, and we'll never come up to his his measure in that regard. Um, But we can greatly surpass him in his hope, not because we're better people. We aren't. Uh, But because we live beyond the historical achievement of Christ at the cross and at the empty tomb. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have these, these books that weren't written yet in Job's time. We have Paul's epistles, we have John's epistles, we have Peter's epistles. We have all of this incredible doctrine and information. We have far more knowledge of the next world than Job ever had. And then we have that amazing book of Revelation that caps off the canon, caps off the, the Bible. And we realize as we read the New Testament, as we read culminating in the book of Revelation, how totally death will in the end have been swallowed up in victory for the people of God how totally we're going to triumph over Satan and all of his attacks and put our feet on his neck 
when all is said and done. We are going to be radiantly glorious, and we're going to shine in that for all eternity. All right, so what I want to do now is I want to give 10 timeless lessons from the book of Job. And I'm just going to go through them, um, and you can write them down or just think. Uh, I'm not going to repeat them. Um, But these are things that I think uh, we can learn from the book of Job. Lesson number one, suffering will most certainly come, but don't live in fear. Suffering will most certainly come, but don't live in fear. We need to have a proper view of life under the curse. Job said this in Job 5.7, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Or again in Job 14.1 and 2, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Sometimes it seems to me that we're surprised when trials come, as though we expected some kind of trouble-free existence in this world. We forget that we are all descendants of Adam, and that in Adam all of us sinned, and in Adam all of us die. Because of Adam's sin, God cursed the ground, to produce thorns and thistles for our labors. So we should not be surprised when suffering comes, when trials come, when afflictions come. So suffering will most certainly come, but don't live in fear. We should not dread them before they come. Job 3.25, Job said this, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. God does not want his people to live in constant fear of the future. Uh, of the three categories of suffering that Job went through, Uh, the three categories of loss, the loss of wealth, the loss of loved ones, and the loss of health. These are the basic things that we're vulnerable about in this world. We should not live in fear of those. We see the final purpose of God in Job's life as all of his earthly blessings were fully restored, not counting his children. And God gave him 10 other children. And so... We see God's purpose there, but we can see a bigger picture of God's purpose as well. And we know that our true blessedness, our true citizenship's in heaven anyway, not on earth. It's been sad for me as a pastor to see how many people are living in constant fear, even still, of the COVID virus. I wonder if some of them will ever get beyond it. We know that faith and fear are opposites, and in the New Testament, frequently they're pitted against each other, that faith drives out fear. How many times does Jesus say, do not fear, just believe? He said that to Jairus, or again with his disciples in uh, in the stilling of the storm. He said, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it became completely calm. So faith and fear in the Bible are often shown as opposites. So suffering's definitely going to come. Somewhere in those 31 sermons, it hit me in a very powerful way. And I said this to my people. Someday, I don't know when, but someday you're going to need the book of Job. You're going to need it. You're going to need to drink in these lessons. And I don't want those trials that come on you to separate you from Christ. So, sufferings are going to come, but don't live in fear. Lesson number two, love your earthly blessings, but hold on to them loosely. Uh, We stand rightly in amazement of how rapidly Job lost it all. In one day, he lost all of his wealth. In one day, he lost all ten of his children. 
And then in phase two, in one day, he lost all of his health. Earthly blessings are a delight. We should not refuse to partake for fear that they might be taken from us. Uh, every good and perfect gift, James 1.17, comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights. We should receive those gifts and enjoy them. Again, 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. But the book of Job does teach us to hold on to them loosely. They belong to God, and God has the right to do whatever he wants with them, anytime he wants. Our children, our children are not really ours. They belong to God because he knit them together in their mother's wombs. Job said that concerning himself. Job 10, he said to God, you molded me like clay. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese and clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence, you watched over my spirit. Well, if that's true of Job, it's true of every baby. It's true of every human being. God knit those people together in their mother's wombs. And they belong to God, not to us. Most of the trouble comes from us thinking wrongly about our things as though they really belong to us. Our money is ours. Our homes. Our clothes. Our bodies. Our children. They're really ours. We forget that we're actually just stewards of things that ultimately belong to God. We are vulnerable in this present age. Proverbs 23.5 says, Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. They will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. So it is with all of our earthly blessings. They're vulnerable. They can be gone in a day. James then tells us how we ought to live in James 4.15. Instead, we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Lesson number three. Understand Satan's relentless hatred, but also God's hedge of protection. Satan's relentless hatred, but also God's hedge of protection. The book of Job clearly reveals the hidden activities of Satan. Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Satan's accusations of Job prompted the test which God allowed. He said, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's direct involvement in Job's sickness in phase two implied he was just as involved in the first phase, the loss of his children and the loss of his wealth. It says in Job 2.7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Satan is a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He's a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Much of the sorrow and misery we experience in this life is almost certainly delivered to us by Satan and by demons, though their activities are hidden from our sight. I believe it is quite possible that Behemoth and Leviathan at the end of the book are referring to demons and Satan. I think that's a little bit clearer when you see Leviathan in Isaiah 27 being pretty clearly Satan, who God will destroy with his fierce, great, and powerful sword. We need to be aware that we have a relentless enemy prowling like a lion. Satan wants to trick us into thinking God is the prowling lion, that God is the one seeking to destroy us. He even had Job tricked for a little while in that regard. Job said this about God. Job 10, 16, if I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion. 
and again display your awesome power against me. So Satan had managed to deceive Job into thinking God was the ravenous beast, the ravenous lion who was prowling and coming after him to destroy him. And that's just not, not true. The ravenous beast is Satan, not God. But the Bible reveals in this chapter 1 this incredible hedge of protection, this hedge of protection, this barrier that Satan and demons cannot penetrate. Satan is frustrated in his efforts to get at Job, and all he has, God won't let him. Job 1.10, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. So central to this concept of a hedge or a wall or a barrier that Satan cannot penetrate unless God opens a gate or opens a door or access is the concept in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will make a way of escape so you can stand up under it. So you see that that statement, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear is dealing directly with Satan and demons. They are on a leash. They're limited. They have to ask permission to get at us. And God in his wisdom decides what he will permit and what he won't. Lesson number four. When suffering comes, respond like Job did. Respond like Job did. At the end of the book, God will commend Job saying, he spoke of me what is right. Now that's remarkable because when God shows up in the whirlwind, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by speaking words without knowledge? Talking about Job. So not everything Job said was right. What then did God mean when he said, Job has spoken of me what is right? I think this. After the first wave of, of affliction came in his life, he said this. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Do you think you could do that? And when your time comes, and when you suffer great loss, can you have the same kind of godly piety that Job did? To say, I understand, naked I came into this world, everything I got, God gave me. He has the right to take it from me. All of those things belong to him and to not charge God with wrongdoing. And then part two in Job 2.10, he said to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not, not trouble? And again, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. What a mature view of life that God is wisely bringing in both blessings and difficulties. He's the one that mixes the ratio. How much of the one and how much of the other? Can you trust God to bring the right amount into your life? Can you also, when your time of, of suffering comes, can you respond like Job did and speak words of praise? All right, lesson number five. Expect, expect God to use the suffering to probe you and to expose you and to convict you. The trial went on much longer than Job wanted. And so it is with suffering in this life. It doesn't get resolved over the weekend. If you with great grief have to bury a loved one, you'll be dealing with it for years. If you have chronic illness and there just is no cure for you and you have to walk with pain and diminished capabilities, you'll have to deal with that for years. The trial's gonna go on longer than you want it to. And what's happening while that trial's going on? 
inner heart attitudes are going to start bubbling to the surface. And that's what happened with Job. He started well, but once the trial really started to bear down on him, he started to say things that he had reason to regret. God was focusing on Job and probing him and exposing him. And that's what happens when we go through suffering. In Job 7, 17 through 20, he said to God, What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me? Will you not let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? So he says, I feel like I'm under the microscope here, God. You're focusing on me. But that's what the Bible says is true. Christ said of himself, I am he who searches hearts and minds. And he does. He uses trials to search our hearts and our minds and show us hidden patterns of sin that we didn't even know were in there. So Job was probed to the deepest level of his being. And in the end, he repented of of the things he said against God and his harsh attitude toward God. He said in Job 40, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Why did he put his hand over his mouth? Because he knew he said things he shouldn't have said. It was true. He didn't say that in Job 1 or in Job 2, but later he did. And then again in Job 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel by speaking words without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Trials are meant to bring us to that point in a healthy way to lose our arrogance and our pride and to despise ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. That's what the trial does. They're meant to sanctify us and to warn us from future sins and to convict us of things we didn't even know were in our hearts. Lesson number six, develop a deep, powerful sense of the overwhelming majesty of God. The overwhelming majesty of God. Perhaps no book in the Bible gives a greater sense of this infinite, unsearchable majesty and glory of the person of God. One verse in particular, Job 13, 11. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall upon you? Again and again in the Bible, there are things called theophanies, where God shows up in some manifestation of his person. Every time he does that, the people are on their faces. Every time. There's a sense of the terror of the Lord, the majesty of God that comes upon. And if you didn't think that would happen to you, then you don't know who God is, and you don't know yourself. Do you remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus? And Moses and Elijah show up, remember? And um, Jesus' face is shining. And Peter didn't know what to say, so he said something. Now, there are people like that. People who, when they don't know what to say, say something. 
Other people, when they don't know what to say, say nothing. But Peter was of the, of the first category. When he didn't know what to say, he said something. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. You know, suddenly a bright cloud appears. God shows up. And the cloud surrounds them. And a voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. What do you think Peter, James, and John were doing at that moment? They're on their faces. They're flattened. Listen again to Job 13.11. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not dread of him fall upon you? If God showed up in the midst of your suffering in a whirlwind and began talking to you like he talked to Job, what would your reaction be? Don't you think it's amazing that Elijah got the still small voice and Job got the tornado? I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought, here's a guy that's on the breaking point. But God knew what Job needed, and this is what happened. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by speaking words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, thus far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud ways must halt. I'd be trembling on the ground. I bet Job was. The more we develop this deep sense of the holiness of God, the infinite glory and the majesty of God, what caused the seraphim in Isaiah 6 to be constantly covering their faces and covering their feet and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The more we see that by faith, the better we're going to be prepared to live well, to prosper well, and yes, to suffer well. Lesson number seven, don't ever question God's love, justice, or wisdom. Ever. Satan predicted he could make Job curse God to his face. Job's wife, sadly, became Satan's mouthpiece at a moment of terrible weakness when she said, curse God and die. I mean, do you see the similarity between what Satan said he could get Job to do and what the wife said? Curse God and die. As the trial wore on, Job, Job's negative attitudes toward God became more and more pronounced, even more and more shocking. Probably the worst is in Job 9, 17 and 18, and Job 9, 23. This is what... This is what Job said about God. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me regain my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. Does that sound like the God of the Bible to you? God doesn't mock the despair of the innocent. 
as though God were some unjust, vicious tyrant. That's the essence of suffering poorly. We're talking about suffering well, and suffering well is to never do that when it comes to God, to never question God or his nature or his choices or his purposes. Never. It's never okay. Furthermore, it's not therapeutic. Say, I'm just venting. But you're in a worse place when you do that venting than when you, when, before you did it. It's not going to help you at all. It's dishonoring to God. And so don't do it. Now, the book of Psalms gives us quality ways to pour out our complaint to God. But they never involve questioning God's basic nature or his wisdom or his love for us. They just are different ways of saying, this hurts, God. I'm hurting. Please give me wisdom. Please guide me. Help me. But it's not attacking God's character or God's basic love for us. Lesson number eight. Do not expect here on earth a full explanation of your suffering. Even when God spoke to Job directly in the whirlwind, he never explained anything about his own condition or the reasons why. Job is yearning to know why. He said in Job 7.20, why have you made me your target? There's the word why. But God never tells him anything. God does not let him know about his boast to Satan or Satan's accusations or any of God's larger purposes. We, the readers, know more than Job did at the time. Fundamentally, God makes it plain that he does not owe any of us any explanations for anything he does ever. Let me say that again. God makes it plain that he does not owe any of us any explanation for anything he does ever. Listen to Job 41.11. This is God speaking. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Do you have a claim against God that he's going to owe you? No, never. Everything under heaven belongs to God. But that's not the final word concerning God's explanations or God's reasons for our suffering. More on that in a moment. Lesson number nine. Know that in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect mediator and redeemer. In Jesus Christ, we have a perfect mediator and redeemer. All roads in the Bible ultimately lead to Jesus Christ ultimately lead to our Savior. Again and again, Job yearns for a mediator and a redeemer. And we know very well that Christ is that mediator. He says in Job 9, 33 and 34, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us, between me and God, someone to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. We know who that is. The God-man, Christ Jesus, is the mediator between us and God. And again, beautifully, in Job 19, 25 through 27, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Oh, that's beautiful. That's Job at his best. Because Christ has come and his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven have been perfectly recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the epistles, in the book of Romans. We understand salvation now. 
in a beautiful and a powerful way. We know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, walking through trials with us. As he says in Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 2, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. He's going to walk with you, Christ is, through those trials. Furthermore, since Christ has risen from the dead, we know this world is not all there is. We're aliens and strangers here. We hold on to everything loosely because we know that our true citizenship's in heaven, our true reward is in heaven, not on earth. And, we're, and a world is coming that Christ has bought with his own blood, a world, a new heaven, new earth, where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And we're going to live in resurrection bodies in that world forever. That's why I say that Job is a better man than any of us will ever be, but we have a better hope than he ever had, a much more developed hope. For us, the grave is a place of hope. It's a transfer portal to a world filled with joy. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Or again, as Paul said in Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is what? Better by far. So the real question I have to ask you, I don't know hardly any of you. I met some of the men at the, at the retreat, but I don't know your spiritual state. The question I want to ask you is, do you know that your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ? We Christians believe that we are forgiven simply by faith, not by works. We think about the thief on the cross who never did anything good in his life, but who at the very end of his life looked over to Jesus and said, remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All you have to do is repent from your sins, turn away from wickedness, turn away from sin, and trust in Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. And sometimes the suffering that God brings into our lives is because we haven't yet done that. We haven't yet repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. And when we get to heaven, we'll see that it was all well worth it if that's what it took to bring us to faith in Christ. All right, one final lesson, lesson number 10. Know that in heaven, God will perfectly restore you, vindicate you, bless you, and I believe, educate you. Job died old and full of years, but we know from the New Testament that that was not the end of his story. Job got all of his stuff back double, except his children. You know, when you lose a child, the birth of another child doesn't take place, take the place of that child that died. You know, there's indication that his Children who died were all pious and godly. Job was worried about them sinning in their hearts, cursing God in their hearts. So that means they had an outward life of piety and godliness. Wouldn't it be cool if Job got all 20 of his children in heaven? And so he got all of his blessings doubled, including children that would spend eternity with him in heaven. It's speculation, I don't know, but it would really be awesome. In any case, I know this, Job's true wealth is in heaven. His redeemed children will never be taken from him there, and there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Job is perfectly vindicated before all the redeemed as a hero of the faith, and in radiant glory he will shine for all eternity. And so will it be for us. 
Our true vindication will be our own resurrection in glorious bodies. Our eternal blessing will be in the new heaven, new earth. And for all eternity, God is going to educate us in his wisdom and his purposes and in his glory and even his reasons for our sufferings. Now, again, I said he doesn't owe it to us, but God wants to open his mind and heart to his children. He said concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That means God wants to explain his reasons to his children. So also uh, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything I've learned from the Father I've made known to you. He also said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so knowing God's reasons, knowing his purposes, that's going to be part of our heavenly education in the glory of God. William Cooper, an 18th century English hymn writer, battled depression for most of his life. His most famous hymn is known by its first line, God moves in a mysterious way. This is what it said. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Now listen to the last stanza. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. But when? When will he make it plain? Did he make it plain to Job before he died? No. I think in heaven, God will finally educate us in his reasons for everything he did in our lives. And we'll see how rational he was and how reasonable he was and how loving he was and wise in everything he chose to bring our way. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to fly over the book of Job today and look at some of the the lessons that come from it. I thank you for the fellowship we have together in Christ. I thank you for the joy that we have in knowing that Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer, and that our sufferings are temporary, uh, but our eternal joy will last for all time. In Jesus' name, amen.